Hi, everyone. Welcome to Better Hiring, a podcast by Workable. As a marketing manager at Workable, if there was one thing I had to choose as my absolute favorite part of my job, it would be learning from the folks who are challenging the status quo and moving the recruitment industry forward. That's why we're here today. This podcast is a space for the leaders who are driving this progress to share their real, honest experiences in overcoming challenges and moving the hiring industry forward. And of course, to bring you the latest tips, trends, and strategies to help you find a path to better hiring. In this episode, we're bringing you a very special guest, Josh Burson. Josh is a world-renowned analyst, author, educator, and thought leader focusing on the global talent market and the challenges and trends impacting business workforces all around the world. Josh's team learned a lot over the past year as they studied the impact of the pandemic on HR, talent acquisition, and business as a whole. You might want to get your notepads ready. This is going to answer a lot of your questions on what the heck the future holds. Let's jump in. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I guess it's, uh, you know, talking about the future is always interesting, but I'm going to talk about the present, too. Um, And the the word that I found interesting today, I got up very early and went for a walk, is effervescence. So um, we're entering an effervescent time. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Um, And it really goes back to uh, a little bit of history. The pandemic was not the only thing that's been going on in the business world of HR and recruiting. It's really been um, a, a really a 12-year cycle starting from the 2008 financial crisis, which, you know, right now it's kind of hard to remember it, but you know, it was pretty bad. And since then, there's been a, this is almost a straight line, this is the stock market, but there's been a pretty steady evolution of digital transformation, um, political, uh, you know, change, income inequality and job change, reskilling, upskilling, new job models, new job architecture, new organization models, um, a focus on the environment, the the uh, global, you know, climate issues, uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's been a ton of stuff. And for those of you that are HR professionals, leaders, uh, recruiters, uh, you know, you've been sort of swimming in this sea of, of change and the pandemic just came along for the ride. And the pandemic really just accelerated every one of those issues and added well-being and resilience and mental health to that. Now, well-being was going on anyway. And if you remember right before the, temp- the pandemic, uh, the unemployment rate was around 3.8%. You were probably finding it harder and harder to hire people and companies were trying to, starting to realize they needed to hire internally because they couldn't hire externally. Um, and we're going right back to that place again. In fact, an interesting piece of research I was just communicating this morning with Glint, if you look at employee happiness in December of 2020, which was just two months ago, versus December of 2019, which was before the pandemic, if any of you can remember that, I can vaguely remember it, it has actually gone up. Employees are happier. Um, And the reason is we've actually made work a lot better. Uh, We've done a lot of things in the leadership of companies and the technology of companies and the the flexibility of companies to make work easier for people to deal with the pandemic. And it was probably badly needed anyway. 
We just didn't have something to kind of shoot us in the arm and force us to do it. And um, of course, the other thing that's going on for you as recruiters is every company is changing its business. Um, you know, when the pandemic started, I read a sort of an interesting thought leadership piece from a guy about low touch businesses. And I thought it was kind of a silly idea, but sure enough, that's what happened. We all learned how to sell and deliver and serve and create products and services, whether it be in retail or transportation or even entertainment that are delivered in low touch ways. Um, and so we've gone through massive amounts of business transformation over the last year, much faster than people ever thought was possible. I, I think the economy is going to be coming, really going to be roaring come sort of the middle of this year into the later part of this year. And that's because companies have adapted very, very well. Now, the people part of it has been harder. You know, everything that's happened in business to make the company more competitive has impacted the people agenda. And, you know, when I show you a little bit more about that, you'll see what I mean by that. But that's, that's really the way to get a sense of what's happened in the year ahead. Now, I spent a lot of time this year on Zoom, as many of you did, and we did a series of really hundreds of hours of interviews with companies. Uh, every Friday, we have six or seven groups that meet together for an hour, and we talk about things that have been going on. And these are the things we've discussed. I won't read these to you, but um, you know, really a lot of focus on things that you might consider traditional HR things um, that have been essential to maintaining a sense of productivity and resilience and engagement with people. And that's why I think employee happiness has gone up is employees are saying, well, look, the rest of my life's kind of crazy, but at least I've got my job and I kind of like the people I work with and my bosses and my managers and my leaders are being a little bit better and things are a little bit more flexible at work, um, leading us to a really new world. And, and I think 2021 and 2022 is going to be a continuation of what we've been doing but with some very significant changes, uh, well-being, citizenship, uh, sustainability, growth, employee growth, internal mobility, these are, these are going to stick with us. And for those of you that are in recruiting, um, I would imagine if you work for a reasonably good-sized company, you're also looking at internal mobility as a part of recruiting. That is something we talked about for years, but it's happened now. And we learned from the pandemic that we can move people around inside the company pretty quickly and they adapt pretty fast. Human beings are very, very adaptable animals. Um, so, uh, so I think we've really gotten sort of a dose of, um, of really, you know, awakening that, you know, the workforce is, you know, a lot more resilient than we maybe ever thought. Now, in terms of the economy, this is just a piece of data to look at. I noticed today that the unemployment numbers went up a little bit, but that said, the number of jobs open in the United States as of January of this year, so this is about two weeks old, is 13% higher than it was a year ago. That's not something you kind of read about in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but this is from MZ. This is real data on real job openings. And you can see, uh, you know, there's a lot of drivers needed. There's nurses, supervisors, retail workers, software engineers, salespeople, customer service. I'll show you some data on this. But we are absolutely moving into a service economy. Um, I'll show you the data on that. And that affects what you do as a recruiter. We're obviously working remotely. Um, you know, I think most economists would agree with me that the future is not all remote, it's hybrid. 
Uh, most of us will be coming to work occasionally or periodically, but not every single day. We'll be commuting in more flexible ways. Companies are setting up satellite offices. There's actually a massive movement in the public sector to build what are called 15-minute cities. So you could have a city where every job is 15 minutes from where you live. Uh, that obviously requires companies to distribute their workers into smaller pods, but that's all happening. So, so we're actually going um, in a very positive direction there. We've obviously spent a year thinking about public health and also employee health and employee well-being. Um, you know, when I, I'm going to talk to you about well-being in a minute. Uh, I first was, you know, introduced to well-being, you know, maybe 2015, 2016. And, you know, I thought it was a nice benefit, uh, but I didn't think it was all that important. And I remember, you know, Google made a big splash with their mindfulness course maybe a decade ago, which was one of the most, you know, popular things in HR at the time to try to, you know, kind of focus on more of the internal part of work as, as, as human performance as opposed to the external part. Well, that went mainstream last year. CEOs, board rooms, CHROs have all been focused on mental, physical, financial, emotional health. And this is going to be part of the workforce going forward, as is a different way of thinking about leadership. You know, um, leadership is probably the most red ocean uh, competitive market in HR. There are thousands of books, hundreds of consultants millions of models, every consulting firm in HR has a leadership offering of some kind. And, you know, I've read a lot of them, not all of them, and, you know, been very respectful of all the research that's been done in this area. What happened this year is we actually found that leadership is about psychology and human behavior. This is a list of what I call power skills that we identified right before the pandemic at a meeting, I was at a meeting of CHROs at UC Berkeley, and one of the speakers was the head of the Greater Good Science Center, and they study happiness. So they're psychologists. And they were going through these words, generosity, teamwork, followership, forgiveness, kindness, patience. And she was explaining to everybody why they create happiness and how they create happiness. And at the end of the presentation, I asked the CHROs, how many of you use these words in your leadership model? in your company mission statement, uh, in your manifesto about uh, performance or whatever it may be. And you know, most of them said none. They just don't, these are not the way we think about leadership. Well, now we do. We've learned now in this particular year, especially coming out of last year, that if we aren't forgiving and kind and flexible and empathetic, uh, we're not gonna have a company. Uh, people aren't going to come to work. They're not going to be able to work. So, so this is a big change. And, and I think HR as a profession, as a function, has become much, much more resilient. Now, when we get into the q and I want to hear about your questions relative to recruiting, because recruiting is a, a very complex area. But one of the things that's happened in HR for the last 15 months is we've learned to distribute autonomy and distribute authority into the organization. We can't sit around in headquarters and make all sorts of decisions that affect everybody perfectly. We don't know. The virus is asymmetric and unpredictable, as is everything else in business. And so we need to empower and enable HR people to operate locally to do what they need to do. And relative to recruiting, that means that if you're a recruiter, and I know some of you are, 
you're in a very important job. You know, in some ways, I've, I've looked at all aspects of HR over the years. Recruiting is the most important thing that happens in a company. If you don't recruit the right people, uh, you know, forget everything else. Uh, you can't just train people that are the wrong fit for your company, the wrong culture fit, the wrong uh, skill set, the wrong background. So uh, you guys in recruiting are, are a very, very important role. And your ability to understand the organization and operate in an empowered way to find the right people is critical. I'll tell you one quick story on recruiting. When I was doing some research on talent acquisition, uh, maybe six or seven years ago, I had talked to the head of recruiting in a large oil company. And I asked him just out of the blue, what, is there any one thing that you think uh, is the most important characteristic of a high performer when you recruit them? Is it degree, experience, culture, age, personality, intelligence? What is it? And he said, it's the recruiter. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, great recruiters hire great people. I thought, well, that's actually a pretty good point. So you guys are really in a very important role. Now, you know, if you want to look at the future uh, of the year, let, let me give you some economic data, and I think this will help you understand it. One of the most significant things that's happened, and this is a little bit like the frog in the boiling water, where you don't feel it, but it's happening, is we're becoming a service economy. Now, there's manufacturing, and there's software engineering, and there's, you know, hard skills, but really, 80 to 85% of jobs are service jobs. The number of manufacturing jobs in the United States dropped 20% in the last two decades. Everything is getting automated. Now, you know, even if, if you're a clerk that enters data, you don't, that job's gone. Secretary jobs have gone away. I mean, there's just lots and lots of examples of this. And what this means is that um, regardless of the industry or the company you're in, the human skills, the human capabilities to lead, empathize, care for people, sell, uh, organize, uh, inspire are basically all you have. I mean, that really is what your company is. Yes, you have intellectual property. Yes, you have software. Yes, you have a brand. Yes, you have products, all that. But, you know, those actually decay pretty quickly. If you're in the software industry, um, you know, you got to be watching out. It's a brutally competitive space. There's somebody building something that competes with you all the time. So, so your human um, capabilities are really the, co the core of most businesses today. And by the way, if you look at the stock market, which is at an all-time high, um, 85 to 90% of the valuation of the United States stock market is intangible assets. It's things you cannot find on the balance sheet. It's not oil in the ground or cash or raw materials. It's human things. It's brand, it's software, it's customer relationships. And so if we take care of the people and we hire the right people, the company will perform better. Now, we also are in a situation where burnout is an all-time high. And this is from Glint. The new report just came out today, and it's even higher. Uh, in the UK, 60% uh, of workers are highly anxious, have high levels of anxiety. 40% have high levels of loneliness. So this pandemic has you know, stressed people incredibly high and it's created a need for benefits. And interestingly enough, year over year over year in the United States, I don't know if this is true in every country because in some countries there's more public support of this stuff, but in, in the US, um, 
wages are going up a bit, but what's really going a lot is benefits. Roughly 33% of wages in the United States are spent on vacation, health insurance, uh, you know, other things that have to do with making work easier for people. And, you know, that's just a symptom of the fact that in a service economy, if the people aren't healthy or productive, the company's not healthy or productive. Now, how do you actually, you know, sort of support that? I think there's been, you know, many, many studies and lots and lots of academic research on this idea of employee engagement. And when I first stumbled across it, uh, we were doing some research on it and I hired somebody that had written a book on it. And she said to me, we don't need to do research on it. I've already written the book on it. And, you know, there's a lot of books on this um, and there's a lot of models on it. And the theory behind it is that if we create a work environment that is engaging, people will perform at a higher rate. But I would suggest that actually we're learning that the opposite is also true and maybe a more important correlation is that when people can perform at a high rate, they become engaged. And that's what this book is about. And there's other studies that prove this, that when you ask people, what did you like about your job today when they come home from work? What the thing that they liked the most is they got something done. They finished something, they helped somebody, they completed a project. And so one of the things we've learned through the pandemic is that the problem is not just making people feel safe and included and friends and training and all that. It's also making it easier for them to do their jobs. And there's been a massive uh, effort in HR under the guise of employee experience to make work more productive. We studied this last year and we did a study of the pandemic response and looked at the companies that were the most uh, at rapidly uh, transforming companies during the pandemic and found, you know, through a bunch of correlations, the 10 things that, that uh, differentiated those companies, and this is what they are. Um, on the left, you know, clearly health and safety, listening to the workforce, creating support for families because everybody's family life was intertwined with their work life, reinforcing a sense of purpose, Purpose and mission really gives people inspiration and energy at work. And that's why there's so many companies working on their mission statement and their purpose and CEOs going online talking about uh, why we're here and why our company exists and the value we provide to society, uh, working in an agile way, uh, using technology in a more adaptable way. But you can look at number seven and number eight, the companies that survived the pandemic well were recruiting. And yes, there was a downturn. Yes, there was unemployment, but everybody was recruiting at the same time. They were recruiting part-time, contingent, people in new locations and call centers. And so, um, you know, these practices remain important uh, even during economic downtimes, the one we had. Now, the other thing that's been going on in the last 12 to 18 months, and this will continue, is a really new philosophy of leadership. Uh, leadership, as I mentioned earlier, is a big topic, and it tends to follow in fads. Um, when I was first working in HR as, a, as an analyst, and I used to go meet with companies, they would say to me, well, if you can just tell me how GE does this, we'd just like to copy how they do it. And GE pioneered the idea of a corporate university, the, the forced ranking model, um, you know, many things about the rugged individual nature of, of 
careers in GE were copied by other companies. Well, I mean, Jack Welch died last year. Uh, Jeff Immelt, several books have been written about him that haven't been super positive. Uh, GE is a fallen company. Nobody's copying them at the moment. They'll come back, I'm sure, but uh, there have been other models. And I think what happened is a few other paradigms changed. One of the big paradigms of leadership that I think is important was Google. When Google came up with the idea of 20% time, which many of you maybe don't remember, this idea that we're going to let employees take Fridays and do what they want to do, wild, wacky idea. Whoever would have thought of that? Well, look how successful that company has become. The idea that Starbucks would give training and healthcare to hourly workers was a radical idea. No one was doing that. If you worked in a, in a coffee shop, you certainly didn't get benefits and you probably would never get tuition reimbursement. Well, Starbucks did that and sure enough, they took off. So these ideas are pioneered by different people. And we're in an era now where empathy is really the key. Empathy, growth, citizenship, and, uh, and fairness, and, and, and equity. And you know, equity is a big deal. Um, and also pay, pay fair, fair pay. You know, uh, you know, I've been watching the pay and the wage data in the economy for a long time, and it's been very frustrating to me to see this divergence between the highly skilled people and the underskilled people in the United States. It's actually a crisis if you look at the data, um, but that's changing now. We now know from studies that I've done in other companies that fair pay is a high-performing uh, practice in business, raising the wages of lower skilled workers actually pays off. There are studies that have showed that in retail where margins are very thin, when you pay people more, you get more profit because they spend more time taking care of customers and taking care of the retail locations and uh, creating service experiences that allow people to buy more things. So, so, so this is also part of the new world is, is rethinking a lot of the core disciplines in HR around this human-centered, business, service-oriented economy. I won't walk you through this slide. We're in the middle of publishing a piece on this. But, um, but one way to think about the next year or two is shifting from a business-centered view of your company where it's all about the business strategy and the business goals and the business metrics and the business results to the human side of that. And, and the, the, you know, the, the sort of the statement that I've made for many companies from my experience as a, as a researcher is that virtually every business problem you have is a people problem under the covers. Where our, our revenue is low, uh, our profits are low, we have an error, we lost an account, we lost a client, uh, well, you know, we're not making enough money. There's always people problems underneath it. So, so this has been, you know, kind of an exciting year from that standpoint uh, because we've been able to talk about the people side of business um, as really part of survival. Now, the other thing that's, uh, you know, part of, you know, dynamics of organizations in HR, and this affects you in, a, in recruiting a lot, is the emergence of companies as a marketplace. You know, in the traditional organization of a company, going back to the 17, 1800s, actually goes back to slavery, by the way. You know, the organizations are modeled after slave plantations. I don't want to shock you, but that's actually where it started. Um, you know, the railroads, the, the manufacturers, they were hierarchies. There was management and there was labor. 
the managers told the labor what to do and the labors did it, labor did it. And then the managers, you know, managed them. Um, well, that's, you know, just not the way companies work anymore. Uh, you know, we're all managing and labor at the same time. Uh, some of us are, you know, designated managers, but we're doing things also. Um, and so the company needs to be more dynamic. And what's really changed is company after company after company are simplifying their job architectures, simplifying their job descriptions, and making them a little bit less specific so that we can accommodate the changing roles that people have. I'll show you a chart on this in a few minutes. It kind of gets into more details. But what it really turns companies into is an internal talent marketplace. And in a talent marketplace, you as a recruiter are recruiting inside as well as outside. And you can do this now with software. I mean, there's tools, talent marketplace tools. I don't know if Workable does this. It probably does where, uh, you know, we can be recruiting people for a whole bunch of jobs that are open and we can say, well, here's a bunch of people inside the company that are, you know, potentially, um, you know, eligible for this. Here's a bunch of people outside the company. Let's kind of do a combination of both. And the people inside the company, if we move them, then other people will have the opportunity to take their roles. That's really going mainstream. We did research on this in 2005, I think. And we found that it was very, very rare and unusual for people to do a lot of internal mobility. In fact, you know, 65% of the companies we surveyed back in 2018 told us that it was easier to find a job outside the company than it was to find a job inside the company, which is kind of an absurd um, you know, state of the world. But that's changing. And so we're in a world now where you know, there's lots of opportunities to move people inside the company. There's lots of tools for this. And this is becoming... Uh, you know, central to the year ahead. And I think for those of you that are in recruiting or talent management, thinking about internal mobility and industrializing it and really uh, embracing it, you know, is a, is a really important discipline for the future, especially as the job market gets very, very competitive again. Now, uh, you know, the next big theme I want to talk a couple of minutes about is employee experience. Employee experience is um, sort of a buzzword that crawled out of HR and landed in IT. Uh, but it's really, what it's really about is, um, you know, thinking through the entire experience at work. And one of the ways to make sense of it is just go back to Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, you know, just as in your regular life, your job is just like this pyramid. If you don't feel safe, you're not going to think about anything else. And after you feel safe, then you think about, you know, belonging and esteem and then accomplishment and goals and self-actualization. And if you look on the right, everything we do in work is somehow mapped to this. The history of employee experience goes back to industrial engineering. In industrial engineering in the, you know, 1900s, uh, you know, people started to study, Frederick Taylor in particular, you know, time and motion studies of employees and we looked at physical things like how much weight they were carrying and how far apart things were in the factory and so forth, just figure out how to optimize work. Then, you know, in the uh, 1930s, actually it was Freud and Carl Jung who first looked at the psychology of work and said, oh, you know, there's some emotional things going on at work too. So maybe if we, uh, you know, take care of people's emotional state, we might improve productivity also. And we started doing surveys and we entered a world of engagement surveys, climate surveys, annual surveys. 
Then, of course, somewhere in the early 2000, you know, roughly 2007, 2008, we all got mobile phones and there was Yelp and there was Glassdoor. They said, oh, maybe we should survey people more often. Maybe we should get some more, you know, frequent feedback from people. And all of this explosion of interest in pulse surveys grew. And now we're in a world where basically it's a design problem. How do we design the systems and jobs and the companies so that they're easy? And so they're more, um, you know, uh, of, uh, attainable by people. And, and so we in HR have been bolted up to, to work with IT, uh, work with facilities, and think about not just job design, but work design. And, and in fact, this is one of the things we're working on in our academy is a whole program on this. And so the problem has become a little bit more complicated. We have the, um, you know, the issues on the left, sort of the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy issues of, of, you know, do I have the right skills? Do I get along with my team? Am I on the right? Do I have the right tools and so forth? And then all of the stakeholders at the bottom. And what's really going on in EX is this is becoming a corporate issue. It's not an HR problem anymore. And so it's now reached really the entire range of employee experience. We're going to be publishing a big study on this in Q2 uh, with all sorts of case studies. Uh, you know, it's a really important part of HR. And I, I think for you in the HR function or as a recruiter, this is, this is a major theme in companies. And a big part of it is listening and feedback. You know, we did a lot of surveys and studies last year about the pandemic. We looked at DEI. We did a really interesting study on DEI called Elevating Equity. Uh, we did one on the pandemic response, uh, did several others. And what came out of all of these studies where we asked companies to tell us about all the things they're doing in HR is the number one uh, performance process is listening, hearing what's on people's minds, because we don't know what's going on. Uh, the virus itself is unpredictable. Uh, economic changes, social changes, regulatory changes, workforce changes last year were very hard to predict. And so we need to listen to people, let them tell us. So open uh, meetings, surveys, lots and lots of, you know, crowdsourcing activities. These are really part of EX too. And, and so the EX market has become a market of continuous listening. And in many ways, you could have predicted this because this is what we do with customers. I mean, you don't survey the customers once every 10 years. You try to survey the customers, you know, maybe every quarter if you can, or you ask the salespeople, what are people saying about our products or why are they returning them or why are they not buying them? We need that data and we need it in HR too. Now, one of the other things that's risen to the top of the agenda this year is diversity and inclusion. Now, and I'm going to show you a little bit of our research on this in a minute. Um, we've studied this. I've studied this multiple times in the last decade. And one of the things we found is that when you look at HR and all of the things we do from recruiting to onboarding to pay to career to performance management and on and on and on, the companies that are the highest performing companies don't just do it. They do it in an inclusive way. They have unbiased, data-driven standards and practices, and they hold themselves accountable to being inclusive. Study after study has shown, I won't go through the data, you can read about it on our website or through the report, that, um, uh, that companies who are more inclusive perform higher. By the way, 
If you look at the engagement data from last year and this year, from Glint and Qualtrics, the two biggest surveys of employee engagement, the number one driver of employee engagement is belonging. I feel that I belong at work. I feel comfortable with my team. I feel like people listening to listen to me. That's really about inclusion. Um, and what we learned in the Elevating Equity research, which is available now, it's free on our website. If you just poke around, you'll be able to download it. Um, is that there are five things that you have to do to create an inclusive culture. You have to listen to people. You have to really strengthen HR capabilities. By the way, most HR people do not feel comfortable with diversity and inclusion practices. You need to make sure senior leadership are uh, committed to a diverse and inclusive business, not just an HR program or a bunch of HR practices. You need to measure it and you need to hold yourself accountable. And, uh, you know, I just read an article this morning, right before I got on the webinar, about McDonald's publicly not only disclosing the diversity metrics, but holding their leaders accountable for diversity with their pay. That is what it takes, because this is a uh, business strategy, not an HR strategy. In fact, one of the ways to think about diversity and inclusion and equity for the year ahead is to look at what's going on in the Biden administration. The Biden administration they didn't just create a program about equity in the United States. They basically said everything we do is about equity, how we do the transportation infrastructure, how we deal with unemployment, how we deal with healthcare, how we deal, deal with the vaccines. Uh, everything has to be done in an inclusive way. And we have to look for underrepresented or uh, underprivileged people or undereducated people at, in an equal way to everybody else. And that's really what's going on in companies. And this is gonna be a massive theme continuing through the next year. Another part of employee experience and engagement is psychological safety. And let me just take a minute on this. Um, this is not a new topic. It actually comes from Amy Edmondson from Harvard. It's a book that's a couple of years old, but it's very relevant right now. She studied healthcare providers and health, healthcare teams and found that the teams that had the highest um, patient outcomes in her studies had the most number of problems. And what she basically found, that doesn't make any sense. She said, well, why would they have more problems? And when she got under the covers, what she realized they didn't have more problems, but they talked about the problems. They exposed the problems. They discussed them. They had a high degree of psychological safety. Psychological safety means you can speak up and people will listen. And as you can see from this chart, if you kind of think about the four quadrants, companies operate in different quadrants here. I've talked, we have a client who's in the upper left quadrant where uh, they actually do not have a psychologically safe environment. Everybody is very nice, but you're not allowed to speak up. Um, and they're, you know, really trying to change that because they have to move faster and they're evolving into the cloud and some other things. So, so this is part of 2021 too, is not just creating a great diversity and inclusion program, but making sure that you have a culture where people can speak up and you can get the information you need to make decisions more quickly. As far as well-being, the you know, really inevitable trend in well-being is away from health towards performance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research on this and lots of vendors and offerings and services and various uh, things you can buy for well-being 
But the way to think about it is not just lavishing people more and more benefits. I mean, everybody sort of likes that for a while. And, you know, you can buy people exercise machines and so forth. Um, you know, it doesn't make as much difference as you may think. What really matters is things that help people do their jobs in a more productive way. Because I showed you earlier, most people, the reason they enjoy work is they enjoy the work and they enjoy the people at work. And if they can't get their job done because they're tired or somebody's getting up in the middle of the night sending them emails or they don't have the right skills, you know, they're not happy. Um, and so the well-being agenda is moving from one of cost reduction and insurance costs, which is where it started, to a focus on total performance. And that's a really positive thing to me for business. And it's going beyond that. It's really also reaching into the ideas of citizenship and volunteerism and taking care of society. You know, if you look at the data on people under the age of 35, most younger workers are very aware of the social issues we have. They're very aware of the DEI and inclusion issues and citizenship and environmental and climate change issues. Uh, and they wanna be a part of the solution. Uh, and so part of well-being at work is also giving people an opportunity to give back, giving people an opportunity to participate in local community events. And so there's a sort of a evolving growth of the well-being strategy in companies to cover all those topics. <clears throat> Learning is, continues to be massive. This is one of the biggest investment areas of HR. Uh, we, every year, there's more research on why we have to do more reskilling and upskilling. Uh, it's not as complicated as it sounds. I think the first point I want to make is that the consumption of learning is high. It continues to go up. Uh, last year, most companies told me they consumed far more learning than they ever anticipated, and people are happier and more productive and more successful when they're learning. And the way I interpret that is human beings are learning animals. From the minute you're born and you learn to eat and speak and walk and everything else that happens in your life, you're learning. And that's the way our brains are wired. And when you're not learning, you're unhappy. So think about learning as much more than a training problem. It's really part of your entire employee experience. And the learning industry is very, very complex and messy. And it goes through phases just like everything else. And we're in a phase now where we've got learning content everywhere. We've got learning content on our phones and on YouTube and in our corporate systems. And people are authoring videos all the time. And there's podcasts and articles and books. Um, and so what we're really trying to do in the learning industry is move learning into the flow of work. Um, Microsoft introduced a learning app in Teams that's going to help with that. Uh, the learning experience platforms are all designed for this. And so one of the strategies that you really have to think about, and this is not easy in a big company, is simplifying the learning experience and using technology to make it easier to find what you need. And what's going on under the covers is a major, major evolution of learning technology where a lot of the tools in the learning industry are looking at skills that a person needs or appears to have, and then recommending learning based on those skills. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this chart, but what we're really finding and doing a lot of work on this is that uh, you as an HR person or an HR team need to decide what the critical business capabilities are for your company, especially if you're doing recruiting, and from them determine what skills you wanna develop or source in people. 
uh, and you get to decide what the business capabilities are. In fact, in HR, we are introducing our capability model in HR, and you can you can actually go through it and assess yourself against it if you join our academy, um, and you'll see that there are actually business capabilities. Um, and so this is a really interesting, fascinating, growing area of HR, and very very important. And it isn't just technical skills, by the way. If you look at the uh, demand for skills among CEOs, CEOs want human skills. They want power skills. They want skills in the ability to prioritize, to lead, to work in a team, to uh, be flexible, adaptable. Learning agility is a skill. Ethics, integrity. These are the things that people really want. Uh, and these are the skills that create you know, growth in, in wages. If you look at the history of wages by different job categories, the jobs that have increased in demand and increased in wages are not engineering jobs per se. I mean, if you're in the right engineering discipline, you're, you've been doing fine. But really, it's what we call high social, high math or high social, low math, management, leadership, project leadership, and people that can do both, people that have technical skills and good human skills. And it's even more true amongst younger workers. If you look at this chart, it's a little bit confusing, but young people are on the right, older people are on the left. And what it's showing you is that younger workers are even more interested in the human behavioral skills development at work because they learn a lot about technology and software and tools in school. So uh, this isn't just a problem of digital skilling. It's really a problem of of power skilling. The HR tech market is really hot at the moment. Uh, you know, companies are going public, valuations are very high. And the reason it's so hot is we're really moving to a new era, a, an era of, of tech that really does HR in the flow of work. Uh, and, you know, Workable is a tool like this that makes a recruiter or a candidate or an employee or a hiring manager's job easier. This has been a big change. You know, HR technology is very complex under the covers. Uh, it takes years to build these systems. And uh, they were originally designed as forms automation systems for HR managers to type things into. Uh, now they're really, uh, you know, look more like chatbots and mobile apps and, uh, you know, much, much different. Um, companies have spent a lot of time and will continue to spend a lot of time on HR tech. And more and more of the energy in the HR tech space is going into this red area, which I call the employee experience layer, making the systems easier to use, making them more intelligent, allowing you to interact with them on a chatbot or by voice, or, or more recommendations from the system on what you want to do. Nobody has time to go poke around in workday and find the right screen to enter your vacation. Uh, you know, if you can just talk to the system and say, enter my vacation, boom done. Let's go back to work and finish what we're doing. So anyway, that's what's been going on in HR tech. Let me finish up and just talk about the HR profession a few minutes and then we'll open up to questions because I want to give you guys some time. The final thing I want to just touch on is, is, is you and us as an HR profession. Um, the reason I started our academy a couple of years ago is that I really believe what's happened to HR is we've become a center of innovation. Um, Everything in the area of talent and recruiting and learning and development and pay is changing. And, you know, you can't just kind of go to a course and learn how to do it and then do it. 
you need to learn the basics of it and then learn how other companies are doing it and learn about what's unique inside your company and the culture and business strategies inside your company and then design something. So a lot of what's been going on in HR is reskilling of us. And I, I think about you and us as HR people like engineers. We need to be what we call full stack professionals. We need to understand the domains of HR. We need to understand how to be good consultants. We need to understand the business and the industry and the competitive drivers in our company. We need to understand technology and data. And we need to understand how to be leaders, how to interact with leaders, and how to develop leaders. And that's a lot. And one of the things that our research found in the last two years uh, is that the companies that invest more in HR capabilities are the higher performing companies. Because in a world where most of the jobs are service jobs, and I told you the biggest criteria for great recruiting is the recruiter, not the technology per se, nothing against workable, but you have to have a good recruiter to go with it. Um, those are higher performing companies. And so uh, my you know, sort of final recommendation is invest in yourself. Take a little bit of time to uh, you know, make sure that you as an HR professional are keeping current on what's going on in the economy, in your company, in the profession and the domain and the tools, and of course, in society. And I think uh, if there's anything I've learned as an analyst over the years, you in some ways are a representation of the societal pressures on your employees for your company. That's really what HR does. That's why HR is such an important profession and becoming even more important in the year ahead. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to hit subscribe wherever you are to stay up to date with our new episodes. And in the meantime, head on over to the Workable blog at resources.workable.com and check out our vast resource library. And if you're looking for a better way to hire, just reach out. We'd love to help. 